Hi everyone, Tiffany here with a super quick note that this podcast was recorded as part of a previous bundle season. That means that the dates that you're about to hear for the bundle, well, they're no longer correct. If you're interested in seeing what the dates are for this year's sale, please visit thebellydancebundle.com. There you'll find all the up-to-date information on our upcoming bundle. While the dates may be wrong and the class mentioned here isn't available through us any longer, many of our guests still have their courses available for purchase individually, so please do feel free to click through to their offerings and take a look. You're going to want to check it out after hearing how brilliant they are. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. It's Yalarox episode 12, and today our guest is Morocco. Yes, we we did put out two episodes in one day, but we had to pick a day to do it since we have so many awesome contributors to this year's Belly Dance Bundle. Plus, I thought combining costuming with a little bit of dancing would cover all the bases. Morocco joins us today to explain the differences in Rock Sharky and Rock Shabby. She shares with us how she learned this dance in the age before the internet, and of course, a way that you can emulate that experience to get to the core of this dance. So let's dive right in. Hopefully you've been enjoying the 21 Days of Belly Dance and our podcast episodes. I'm producing all of this wonderful content with our amazing contributors in celebration of the 2019 Belly Dance Bundle, which you can learn more about at thebellydancebundle.com. I've just put up the entire course list so you can see all 22 items included in this year's bundle. From lectures to choreography and technique, I've brought together teachers and courses to provide you with an opportunity to learn from some of the best on the subjects that you are interested in. Discover new teachers, learn new techniques, and enhance your knowledge with this year's bundle. The bundle is on sale from October 16th to the 23rd of 2019, so be sure to get it while you can, because this bunch of materials will never be available again. So head over to thebellydancebundle.com to check out the course list and sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a thing. And welcome to Yala Rocks, the belly dance podcast that helps you design your personal practice. I'm your host, Tiffany, and today we have a dancer that could not truly be summed up in an introduction. She is the author of several books, including You Asked Aunt Rocky, Answers and Advice About Rock Sharky and Rock Shabby. Morocco, Morocco, how are you doing today? I'm still breathing and I'm still alive. And that's, that is what we hope for every day, Morocco. You know. We, we need you here to share all of this wonderful information that you have in your brain. I, and I got it because I keep finding out that I know more than I thought I knew. And I got to share it. Otherwise, it's going to disappear. And we definitely don't want that. So let's, let's jump in and have you share some of it with us today. Okay. Um, before we jump into your contribution to the bundle and all of the goodness that that's going to lead us into today, I've been having everyone tell us how they got into Rock Sharky in the first place. So mm-hmm. can you tell us about that moment that effectively ended up dictating your entire life? <laughs> <laughs> it's the opening chapter in New West and Rocky, and it's on my website. It's called The Best School That Ever There Was. I was sent to audition for a flamenco job because I was a flamenco dancer. Long story short, 
I'm rehearsing with a flamenco company. They're not paying us for rehearsal. I needed some money because I'd like to eat at least once a day. I mean, you think it might be possible. And the rehearsal studio where we were was owned by a Greek Orthodox priest who was a friend. And he sent me to a restaurant that a friend of his was opening. They needed dancers. I went thinking they wanted flamenco dancers because that's what I did. Long story, much, much shorter. They were so desperate, they would have hired Godzilla. She had a bedlam. And while <laughs> I didn't know squat about Rakshari at the point, I'd never seen it, never heard of it, nothing. I could at least hold a rhythm. And some other people that were there to audition couldn't hold a rhythm if you put it in a paper bag and handed it to them. So they said, she said at the end of this audition, which is described in full, in the book and on my website. You dancer, you're not oriental dancer, but you're dancer. I give you a job, two weeks. You look, you learn, you stay. You look, you don't learn, thank you very much, goodbye. And I went and I looked and I flipped. I totally flipped. As much as flamenco spoke to me, this music got me on a much deeper level. And I wanted to know more about it. There was a guy who got up and was dancing by himself, and I thought he was drunk as a skunk and out of his mind. And I wanted to know why they didn't make him sit down. And the Greek singer says to me, you crazy, Mori, they're Greek folk dance, that's in Bekiko. I'd never seen an American guy get up and dance by himself. Now, this was like December 1960, a little before you were born. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so fascinated, I wanted to know everything about it. And I was right smack in the middle of the culture, because there were no schools. If you wanted to learn, you assimilated. And in trying to explain how I learned for this particular lecture, at first I started out being really logical about it. And when I did it the first time, I realized I'd left out the most important parts. So I redid it, which is what I'm gonna be doing when I give it now, and I'll probably come up with even more points that, because as you say it, and you hear yourself saying it, it leads to another part that you just gotta throw in there, you know, because it's a stew. And in order to have it really taste good, you need all the ingredients. And it's, it's one of those things, a talk turns into a longer talk, which turns into eventually, like you could probably write several novels on this topic. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one of my fantasies, I'm working on another book using this, these two lectures that I'm doing for you and a couple of others um, as the basis for it. So Morocco's lectures in the Belly Dance Bundle, she's going to be doing two for us, which is amazing. They are Chasing the Phantom, Discovering and Uncovering the Soul of Your Rock Sharky and Rock Shabby. And the second one is, are there really stylistic differences in Rock Sharky and what are they? Clarifying the bigger picture of Manat dance. So Morocco, let's dive into this topic a little bit. And before we kind of jump in all the way, before we like yeah. head first off the diving board, yeah. for people who are newer to the dance, who might be listening to the podcast, can you talk about the terms Rock Sharky and Rock Shabby for sure. them so that they understand kind of where all of this is coming from as we move forward? Okay. That's easy. Raks is dance in Arabic. And way back, the dances that the people did, they just called them raks because that was all they knew. That was what they did for fun. That was what they did at home and socially. 
And that's all they needed to do was call it rocks. When they began having the Europeans and colonials coming and other types of entertainment entering into their scene, they needed to differentiate between theirs and the West. And that's when they came up with Rakshari. Rakshari means Eastern or Oriental in the terms of like Oriental carpet, uh, near, middle, and far East. And the European dance was Rakshfarangi or French or Crusader dance. And the dances that were more localized, more um, folk and regional, that was called shabby, because shabby means of the people. And they, there's a style of dance that's done now socially and mostly by the younger people in the Middle East now that is called shabby. And it's a different shabby, but it just refers to anything like folkloric or of the people. Raxbelody is also a version of, of the people. It's like of the town, of my town, of my village, Raxbelody. So there's all kinds of names that mostly we give things that the real people don't need because they know what they're doing or they know what they're talking about. And we need all these labels or we're looking for labels and we're looking for short sound bites that'll explain everything in two words or less and that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> Definitely not. Right, because the, the story is in the spices and the adjectives and what you put in it and what it, what comes out. It's kind of like you're this big pot and you've got all kinds of veggies and goodies and spices and you put in what expresses you, but it's a cuisine that you know what you're doing with. It's not just anything random. And this is a dance that belongs to several cultures um, and, and its variations. And it's uh, something that people do for fun. Most folks do folk dances for fun. It's usually the socially acceptable way of looking each other over, maybe getting to hold somebody's hand, depending on the culture you're in. And in some dialects of Arabic, rakshari is sometimes called raksfara. And in Egyptian Arabic, fara means wedding. But in some other places, it means happiness. It's a happiness dance. And it's considered such an important happiness dance, especially for weddings, that the mother of the bride in a lot of areas is obligated to dance to show how happy she is that her daughter's getting married. This And this is exactly why I wanted you to define these terms for people, because we want to put that, that quality information in the pot, right? Yeah. And, exactly. and being able to go into conversations like this and have an understanding of, of the terms that you're discussing we don't want to. We don't want to assume that people know what we're right. talking about. Oh, that's for sure. I mean, I've spent fifty-nine years of explaining to people that they didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> yeah, and the reason I've started using Manat, I got it off chat lists on the internet. Is I really don't like the misnomer, and Manat is Middle Eastern, North African, and Turkic, which takes in the whole area, because these are dances that in one form or another cover a very wide geographical area. Um, and there are some really interesting side things to notice as to how the people who make the maps 
who are mostly Western, the way they make the maps and where they put the countries is a very telling thing that I only realized when I was making the little sheet that I'll be putting up when I do the talk on these different styles as to why I was using Middle Eastern, North African, Turkic and where the countries were or the territories and who was allied with whom. But it's mainly because of the misnomer and a lot of the problems that it's caused in people misinterpreting not only the dance, but the person doing the dance, that I want clarification. And something that covered the subject accurately was easy to remember and wouldn't get you in trouble because I got enough ways of getting into trouble. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> so the title of, of one of these lectures is Uncovering the Soul of Your Rock Shocky, yes. Sharky or Rock Shabby. Mm-hmm. And what what then do you describe as like the soul of someone's dance? Okay, you learn, it's like learning to write. You learn the letters and you learn how to spell words and how to make sentences. And then you make paragraphs and you can either end up writing a novel or haiku. Um, but it's more than just the movements. It's Absolutely. like a language is just a collection of sounds where people agree on a meaning for a certain amount of sounds. And you can have the same sound in two different languages and have them mean two totally different things, which makes for really great punning and, <laughs> and smart out with jokes. But um, there's a movement vocabulary. There's different types of music. And it's more than just the moves. It's more than just the music. It's more than just the parts of the body that you're moving. It's the essence of what the, whichever particular dance is of the people it belongs to. And they're doing it from joy, from fun, for it to celebrate. And Lord knows life is hard enough. You can't have enough celebration. You need all the celebration you can get. And it's not just learning the movements. Yeah, you need to get the movements down and drill and have a way of learning them and remembering them. But it's not about technique. It's not about how big a hip circle you can make or how high you can raise your hip. And as I was learning, I had to assimilate it. I had to learn it by watching the grannies and the aunties and talking to the musicians because there was nobody to explain it. And when I did the first version of the talk that I was going to do for Mahin, and I was describing some of the movements, I realized that I hadn't explained how I got the movements because they weren't showing me. I picked them up. I assimilated them the way they did because they didn't go to a school to learn how to dance. It's like when I was a teenager, um, we learned the popular dances from each other. Mm-hmm. We would go to the Y and dance, and these, or go to like little sock hops. We're talking about the fifties and dance, <laughs> and we learned from each other. It was the same thing here. They they assimilated from each other because the kids and the family they were around watching the adults. They and it was, a lot of the stuff was in the homes. These were people who, in their own country, wouldn't go to a restaurant or a nightclub or a place where uh, that was so public or where there was alcohol, but there they are in America. And this particular immigration that I was lucky enough to fall into was mostly Levantine, a lot of Christians, 
much more optimistic than the current because conditions in the near Middle East are not what they were in the 60s and 50s. Mm -hmm. And these were people who missed their music. They missed their dances. They missed getting together with relatives and just having a grand old time boogieing and maybe making some baklava and a lot of coffee and boogieing and having some food and boogieing. And they didn't go to a school to learn it. It was pulled out of you by what was happening. If you were in the middle of it, it's like if you're in a pot of boiling water and you're a little piece of vegetable, when that water boils, you're going to be bouncing because the water is moving you. When you're in a group of people who are having a grand old time dancing and they've dragged you up to dance with them, you're going to be moving with them because otherwise you're going to be dragged along the floor. Right. I think that parallel that a lot of younger dancers might be able to relate to if they've been in Arabic restaurants or been around the culture a little bit uh, is you get pulled into Debke lines all the time. Oh yeah. And then yeah. you have, you like, that's how you learn how to Debke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I did not live within my culture because my parents would have lost their jobs in a heartbeat uh, if it was known. So you assimilated into the dance, you learned it in this way, but so yeah. many of us didn't have that opportunity. And it's gone. And it's, it is very hard to find that unless you go to one of the Minak countries and like really assimilate yourself into the culture there. Yeah. And how can those of us who haven't had that experience, haven't found that, can we still find this like soul yeah. of the dance? How do we yeah. kind of bring that to our dance? Because it's so important. I explain it to you till I'm blue in the face and we get up and we dance and we go to places where there's opportunities to dance. It's like the way you learned your social dances as a teenager. It's the same process. It's just a different language and maybe more complex music, maybe less complex music, depending on what you're doing. But it just takes more effort on your part, you being the universal you. Yes. And... You never know where things are going to turn up. You never know who you're going to run into that could either add to it. Because what we are is the sum total of everything we've ever learned, thought, read, smelled, tasted. We're this big pile of impressions and data and cash and bites. And whenever you see something new or different, it's always looked at and assimilated or not in relation to what we already know. And which is why like when, so it's like when people see flamenco or tap or baratanatyam uh, or kathak and they see that there's stuff with the feet, they do what they know how to do with their feet, but they don't know what the subtleties, the differences, where on the foot, when, with what kind of strength, it's that kind of a thing. It's in proportion to what you know. And then if you don't get it then, somehow or another, sometimes there'll come a time when you do. There was one movement that I was trying to get. I couldn't wrap my head, or actually get my body to do it so that it looked like the way I saw other people doing it and the way I thought it should look. Because one of the hard things for this dance, for us, is we're from a culture that is our workaholics. And yeah, that's for damn sure. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. And if something feels easy, 
we think we're not doing it right. And because these movements go so totally with a natural human muscle structure, you are you have relaxed control from the inside out, not imposed control from the outside in as in Western dances or the more staccato dances. And so if you're doing something and it feels like you're hardly moving, you think you're not doing it right. And I would think that, that that couldn't be right. I don't feel like I'm doing anything. And we didn't have video cameras then or anything where we could record it and see. The first time I saw a film of me, it was I was doing a movie with Chuck McCann and uh, it was called The Projectionist and we were filming some scenes upstate New York in a cave. And I did my little bit and I'm looking at the daily rushes at the end of the day they were showing. And I said, what did you do, speed it up? They said, no, we actually slowed it down. I like I was going at 150 RPM. And I was like, that's what it looks like. <laughs> I didn't want to come out of the house for a week because I thought it looked like this, but it looked like that. And I also thought that if I could do an individual hip movement for every beat, that that would be way cool. And yes, I could. And when I saw the photographic results, it was like, I was beating that music to a bloody pulp. Mm -hmm. So it's the, that kind of thing where you don't have an inkling of where the movement is supposed to come from because our culture here, thanks to our Puritan foremothers, fathers and foremothers, it is so anti-body that you're practically walking around in a corset, mentally, if not physically. And so it's almost impossible to imagine that you're doing something too big or too hard because you can't feel it. And so it took quite a while for me to realize that. And that movement that I was looking for, is really lovely. And one day I actually was in Cairo with a bunch of ladies, uh, all dancers and one of whom was Sarah. And we went to, um, I think it was the Meridian to see Dina and we were waiting because the, the band was setting up and they, they were playing music and the people in the restaurant were up and dancing. And we were up and dancing and Sarah was wearing this lovely knitted sheath that was very soft and very delicate and it showed the outline of her body and she was doing that movement. And because the, the knitted fabric stayed with her body and with her muscle, I could see what was happening and I saw where the movement was coming from and where it went. And I had gotten it backwards. Ah. Right idea, but the wrong method. And it was like, you never know when you're gonna find, that's how you do it. So it's really, it's a matter of massive amounts of exposure. Yeah, and or doing it and or, if I had somebody then who could tell me half of what I've just told you, I would have learned a lot of stuff faster on the one hand. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I might not have learned it as deeply or as compatibly with putting it together with the other movements. Mm -hmm. And it took a while and a lot of times when I, I, was, I was crazy, I was working six nights a week when I came back from the gig with the Flamenco Company. And on the seventh night, I'd go to another restaurant to see other dancers to see what they were doing. And half the time I learned more from the bad dancers from seeing what not to do, what mm -hmm. didn't work. And some of the things I did, and one of my favorite stories is where for the slow part, I'm doing uh, 
passe develop into high arabesque with my leg up there in the back and I'm taking it around in a circle very slowly which is very difficult in ballet mm -hmm. and I did that three nights in a row and I'm thinking gee I'm hot you know this is a real good move I'm going to use it again and the oud player got up and he was this little old Armenian guy and at four o'clock in the morning when we finished and they were about to feed us he came over and he said I watch you dance now you could do it. You listen to the music. You know rhythm. You're a good dancer, but can I tell you something? <laughs> I talk to you like your Uncle Charlie. Can I tell you something? Now, I should tell you, my dad was a cop. They say, you know, go with Uncle Charlie. And I was like, um, yeah. Honey, this not ballet. Ballet, you run, you jump, you kick your feet. This oriental dance, be very careful. Feet together, feet on the ground. We don't want to see a pussycat. And I said, oh, you mean no passe developé into high arabesque? Right, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you, you don't, you know, we know you got it. You don't have to show it. Now, I remember that, but not in the front of my conscience. Years later, because this was 1961, 1976, I'm in... 15 years later, all right. Yeah. I think I was in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, doing a um, seminar, and there was a very large um, Jordanian, Lebanese, Syrian uh, constituency in that, in the iron uh, factories and the smelting, and I was hired to teach a seminar, and there were a lot of dancers that came to the seminar, and we had a show afterwards in the biggest restaurant in, it was Stroudsburg, in Stroudsburg, and the place was packed. And it was almost entirely Middle Eastern families, you know, Levantine families, and it was a good show. We're having a grand old time, I'm watching. I did my cane dance in the first half and I'm waiting at the second half to do the closing. And there was this young woman on dancing who was the girlfriend of the Syrian drummer. And she was a good dancer. She was a teeny little blonde chiclet. And she's dancing, and she takes out a sword, puts a sword on her head, and she's dancing, and the audience is appreciating it. She looks really good. She takes another sword, puts it on her head behind the first one, so she's got one this way and one that way. And everyone goes, ooh, two swords. They hadn't seen that. Then she takes a third sword, puts it on her shoulder. So we've got arm out, arm up, but behind the, the, two, the two swords. She really had to get it up there carefully. And, was like, and she's dancing with the three swords. And we're all like, holy cow. Then she takes the hand that's out here and takes her leg and lifts her leg up. And the, the Americans in the audience, the Westerners in the audience are like, holy shit, how does she do that? Within five minutes, just about every Middle Eastern man in that restaurant had put the money for his check for his family on the table and ushered the wives and children out of the restaurant. And I'm, I was still thinking, wow, like there she is with three swords and how is she going to get out of that? And I could hear Garabed's voice in the back of my head. Honey, feet together, feet on the ground. We don't want to see you pussycat. And was like, oh, wow. And so I tell that whenever people say, how do you know if you can do something or not? And you remember like several years ago when a reporter threw a shoe at George Bush? Yeah. 
and we haven't heard from him since. Um, yeah, he threw a shoe at George Bush, but they didn't quite get the significance. Over there, the worst thing you can do in socially in some places is show the bottoms of your feet because that's all the dirt you've walked through. And aside from the fact that Saddam Hussein had George Bush Sr.'s face in mosaic on the floor of one of the big government buildings, <laughs> <laughs> when you're seated, if you, you, know, you don't put your feet up casually on the table and show your feet. And a lot of people don't realize that. So they're doing movements that will show a lot of feet. And they wonder why there's no problem with the Western audience. But when they get to an Eastern audience, there's a strange vibe. And the strange vibe is, why are you showing me the bottoms of your feet? And when I was telling this tale in one of my classes in New York, this, about the time of one of the desert storm things, um, in the New York Times, the next day, above the fold was a big picture of a very traditionally dressed Iraqi woman with the, like, she looked like Sister Mary Ignatius from the 1300s, with a shoe and a fallen statue of Saddam Hussein where the pieces were broken apart and his head was lying on the ground and she's hitting his head with her shoe. And it was like the perfect example. And it's little things like that, that you don't find out in books uh, or it isn't articulated. It's like nobody is gonna tell you, hey, you know, when you go into this household, make sure you sit with your feet flat on the floor because you don't like cross your legs and dangle a foot and do one of these things. And if you're seated on the floor and you've got your skirt over, make sure it covers your feet and that your feet aren't seen. People don't tell you those things. But when you're growing up in the family, if like a little girl is running around and playing and she wants to play like the little boys are playing, one of the relatives is always telling her, hey, rat it means cover your butt. She's got to make sure her skirt is down, her dress is down, whereas the boys can go climbing all over the place, which is why I live in New York. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I love these little these little tidbits, and I think you're right. It is when you learn in this environment, you just pick it up, and people take you aside and tell you these things. But in a in a broader context, a lot of this the little cultural things that can make such a big difference get missed. Yes, and it is. It is exposure. It's putting yourself in as many situations as possible to interact with people from the culture, to go to events held yes. by people of the culture, and to learn as much as we can from teachers and dancers of the culture so that we can we can bring all of this knowledge and be as respectful as possible when we're dancing. Exactly. And that's why I rewrote the original because as I was telling it, I realized, wait a minute, I haven't said the most important part. It's like sometimes you'll hear about a silent note or a hidden beat. And I figured out how to explain it and so that somebody can understand what it is because it does exist. But the question would be explaining it. And within the culture, they usually didn't explain it. They just did it. We need a translator. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, and as I was rewriting and rewriting and going deep, it was like, oh my God, I'm going to be at this for the rest of my life, which wouldn't be bad. I mean, you got this far. Yeah, and I'm still breathing. And it's like, there are people who want to know. Because when I first started researching, it was for my own curiosity. 
I wanted to know why. I wanted to know where the feet grew from. I wanted to know why this one did it that way and that one did it the other way. And when Paul Monty invented seminars and we first started teaching seminars and I wanted to teach culture and history along with the dance, I was told, no, we just want some nice flashy steps and nice costumes. That's, that's all we want. And then they wouldn't believe me. And finally, it's when I started making the Super 8 films so that I could come back and show what the real people were doing. And even there, there were some people who said, oh, you just hired them and taught them something you wanted them to do. I was like, oh yeah, I'm that wealthy, I wish. But there's, there's just so much there. And the problem, aside from the wars, and the wackos that are ruining the world. Um, all these wonderful means of communication we have now didn't exist in 1960-61. I mean, if I wanted to do math, my calculator was a number two pencil. <laughs> and there was no such thing as the internet or an iPod. The, the lightest portable music was reel-to-reel Volensock that weighed 73 pounds, tape recorder. Is that kind of thing. There's so much stuff that we have at our fingertips now that didn't exist back then. You had to go and chase it down yourself. But sometimes in the act of chasing it down, you learned a lot more than you would have if somebody had told it to you. And that's why I'm, I'm trying to get as much of it down as I can. Because each rewrite, I was able to explain more and put in more. And there's also a lot of myths and fantasies that people in our field have heard and assimilated because they heard it from people they knew were liked or because a teacher told them and they don't know because they weren't there what the reality of it is it's like this whole thing about when you're wandering in the desert and you put up the tents and you make dinner and then you take the cab the fringe off the camel and you put it on your hips and you dance with it the women didn't ride on the camels, they walked. The camels were carrying the household goods and the tents and all the stuff they couldn't carry. They were walking all day. They were working like like donkeys. And they were pretty damn tired. They weren't about to go bouncing around a fire after dinner just for fun in the middle of the desert. Hey, there, was st- there is stuff that's done, but there's stuff that isn't done. And it's tales like that. Or tales like um, one of the officers of Napoleon, Napoleon's troops complained to one of the Armenian government official. He was he, he was supposedly told by this French military person that the Gawazi were bothering his troops and that he didn't like that. The legend has it that 400 Gawazis were strangled and had their heads cut off and they were thrown into sacks in the river. Now, the Ottoman Turks they would sometimes execute, especially women in the harem that had stepped out of line. Um, And that's like the sultan, that's not your ordinary guy on the street. They may kill somebody now and again. It's politics, it's wackos. Um, But there was never anybody who tried to look it up to see if it really happened till Kathleen Fraser, who wrote a very good book called before they were belly dancers. And because you, you hear a name and you think that that's the name that goes with it. And sometimes in like 2019, because we are now, right, 2019 already, you can say stuff on national TV that I couldn't say 
on camera in 1965, where you couldn't even say, oh my God, you know, that was considered a bit much. And in one culture, it's a totally, totally acceptable word. It's a totally acceptable way of describing something, or you happen to like that description. In another part of the culture, it gets you in deep trouble, and people make um, judgments out of that. And there's a whole section of, you asked Aunt Rocky, called What's in a Name? And having lived through it, I know, because I know what it took to get performances in venues that wouldn't let a quote-unquote belly dancer walk in the door because they had the wrong idea of what the dance was because of what the word meant back when, not because of what it means now. So that's, that can be frustrating. And there are ways around that and ways to deal with it. And then also there's very many different styles when somebody says, well, what do you do? Well, I do Egyptian or I do Lebanese or I do this or I do that. And there are specific folk dances. There are names for them. And we don't seem to have a problem using the names for different dances in Indian dance or in some other folk forms of dance, but they seem to have a problem with the B word. And I didn't have a problem with it till other people made it a problem. It covers a wide territory. And if someone says I'm doing Arabic dance, well, in, actually in Arabia, they didn't do it. These were like the Bedou who were wandering on the desert. And it was, wasn't Saudi Arabia till like 1932. And, you know, things like that. But it's not Arabic dance. Yes, it's done in Arabic-speaking countries. It's also done in Turkic-speaking countries and in some countries where they speak Farsi. It depends on who's where. It, it covers a wide territory. So if I say I'm doing Oriental dance or Rakshari, uh, that's an accurate description. But if I were to say I was doing Turkish dance, well, would I be doing it in Turkish style or... Was it actually Turkish style because I learned it in Turkey or because I'm dancing to a Turkish song? There are reasons and there are names that we can use. And I like the idea of having like the, the entire territory. I didn't put a Near East because everybody wants everything in there. I said, why don't you do M Middle East, Near East? Is because then it's not Menat, it's Menonat. And it sounds like I'm stuttering. Um, and that I'm not saying Turkish, I'm saying Turkic, because there are an awful lot of countries uh, and territories where they're not Turkish, but they speak a version of a, like Azerbaijan, Uzbek, uh, Tajik is closer to Persian or Farsi. Um, there's, but there's a dance movement doesn't need a visa to cross a border. Especially now. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so it's like things travel. And the, like what we think is just strictly the Saudi, the Raksa Nashal, in Kuwait, it's called Raksa And Kuwait used to be part of Iraq. And when people from Kuwait would go to Iraq, the towns around it, they were doing the same dances because it was the towns around it. A border is a shifting line in the sand that moves as the wind blows. I love that you're you're saying like that there are words that we can use to kind of describe these things. And I know that there one of your lectures is is about this in the bundle. And I'm very excited to hear the expanded version of both that and the finding your soul mm -hmm. in your rock sharky. Mm -hmm. Cause I think 
you do have a lot of really great things to share. And I'm very excited for bundlers to hear them after the sale this year, which by the way, everyone is October 16th to the 23rd. It's available for one week. Um, and those titles for those lectures, again, everyone, so that you can, you know, let them percolate in your brain. Cause even the titles kind of get you thinking are chasing the phantom, discovering and uncovering the soul of your rock sharky and rock shabby. And are there really stylistic differences in rock sharky and what are they clarifying the bigger picture of Manat dance? Morocco, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your knowledge and all of the work that you've put in, not only to these lectures, but just over the course of your entire career in dance. My pleasure. It was really because I'm curious and because it's such fun. It, it definitely is fun. That's why we're all here, because we have so much fun doing it. And yeah. hopefully people are listening because they're curious, because we're just here to talk. We don't even have, you can't even see dance moves when it's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So Morocco, how can, other than the bundle this year, how can people connect with you? What should they check out to get more of your work? Um, well, there's my email and my website. I love working with you guys. I love working with people who want to know the same kind of stuff I want to know. Because even just talking together, you pull facts out of people's heads that they didn't know were in there. And it's such fun. And you can you get me at Morocco at casbadance.org. And the website is www.kasbadance.org, which is orgy without a Y. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of it is in U.S. and Rocky. And the two lectures that I'm doing now, or maybe a couple of others, are going to go into the next book. And then I'm thinking of doing something like, is like more anecdotal, like all the funny stuff, like falling asleep in the middle of my own floor. We cannot wait to hear all of those stories because I bet that after 60 years in dance, you have quite a few mishaps to share. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome, Morocco. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to chat and I hope to have you back on sometime in the future. Oh, anytime. You're a delight. Thank you so much. so intangible, this soul of our dance. And while people refer to it in different ways, you start to see a commonality between those expressions, the heart of what everyone's trying to describe. Hopefully by the end of these Belly Dance Bundle episodes, you'll have accumulated a couple of different explanations of this to piece together what resonates with you so that you can go out in the world and find it for yourself. That is, if you haven't already found it. But it's always an ongoing journey with this dance. There's so much to learn. And exposure to new material from all directions, and especially from the culture itself, will help with this more than almost anything else. You never know where that lightning bolt is going to come from. So if you're interested in learning more from Morocco, we've put links to her website and her books on thebellydancebundle.com 12. So head over there to check it out. Want more practice tips delivered straight to your ears? Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really anywhere that podcasts are found. We're not picky. And if you're interested in this year's Belly Dance Bundle, be sure to check out thebellydancebundle.com for the entire course list, which was posted this morning. All 22 courses are listed, so you can see exactly what you'll be getting if you decide to buy on October 16th. Not only will Morocco be deep diving into both of the topics we brought up today, but you'll also find technique, choreography, and much, much more in this year's bundle. 
So head over to thebellydancebundle.com to learn more and get on the newsletter to be sure you don't miss any of our updates. Now, it's time to go find yourself an event or a restaurant to go to. Expose yourself to this dance as much as possible. 